With no fees or minimums, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than deciding to listen to another episode of your favorite podcast. And with no overdraft fees, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank. Capital One N.A. Member FDIC. Life in our modern age comes at you pretty fast, which makes our time away especially valuable. When I take time to relax, I like to get far from my everyday life, immerse myself in natural beauty, and have unique experiences. But you don't have to leave the U.S. to experience tropical rainforests and islands filled with adventure, warm culture, and national treasures. Visit Puerto Rico, an island with a vibrant spirit that will sweep you away. Because when you visit, you don't become part of the island, it becomes part of you. In Puerto Rico, you can forget where you came from and embrace where you are. Puerto Rico, where visits end, but stories last forever. No passport required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and Jerry's here on mute. And this is Stuff You Should Know. Good day. <laughs> Why are you doing an Australian greeting? There's pubs in Australia. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Okay. Did you? Uh, I, I had a really great pub experience in Manchester. I know you told me about it. Was it the one? I can't remember the, the name of it. The where Morrissey had his had or the Smiths had that photo shoot, or was that just no. in the same story? No, probably the same story. That was outside of the Salford Lads Club. Yeah. Uh, very famous photo. But I wandered inside a genuine old school, uh, like, basement cask ale pub mm-hmm. in Manchester. Mm-hmm. And it was great and authentic and on such a lean. Like, I've never seen a floor this slanted in my life that wasn't like uh, House of Tricks. <laughs> oh, I, I remember those. Isn't that yeah. in the end of Greece? Uh, I don't you know. I haven't seen up? Greece in a long time. Because I get... need a man. <laughs> I don't remember that. Did they go into a leany house? Yeah, I believe they do. Or a, a, a bouncy house or a rolly, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this one is so leany that you felt like if you were in the front of the pub and put your pint on a table, it may actually slide. <laughs> wow. It was really leany. So the point of going to this pub was to get so bent that everything straightened out for you. <laughs> I don't know. No, I had a couple of beers. It was just great. And I just, uh, I'm a sucker for for that kind of stuff. Really sure. old places and having and a homie. beer in an old place. Yeah, I love it. Definitely. Yeah, I had a couple of nice pub experiences too. I went to one, I can't remember. It was in Dublin, right down from the Guinness factory. Mm. I don't remember the name of it, but it was super old. Very, it was a really old pub, and um, I wish I could remember the name, but shout out to the that pub <laughs> that I can't remember. But yeah. I'm with you, and I think it's not just us who appreciate pubs for their hominess. Um, and Chuck, I believe that what you went to would be called a local, a, a traditional independent English pub. Yeah, a neighborhood pub. And um, pub, we should say, is short for public house to the few people who didn't know that. Now you do. And these things are so, pubs are so um, essential Mm -hmm. to England and to Ireland, as we'll find too, that the essayist Hilaire Belloc uh, wrote that when you've lost your inns, 
meaning pubs for all intents and purposes, drown your empty selves, for you have lost the last of England. Mm. I love it. Yeah. So where did we get pubs? From the Romans. <laughs> Duh. Uh, it is true. Um, before there was a United Kingdom and there was Roman occupation, we're talking uh, about 43 to 410 CE, there was, uh, we talked a lot about Roman roads and how their big network of roads, and that was one of their big accomplishments, linking places together. Mm-hmm. And so along these routes, they had what were called uh, tabernae, T-A-B-E-R-N-A-E, uh, what we know as taverns. And it was what you think. It's like a place where a traveler can stop, have a little food, and and these establishments have wine. Yeah, because the Romans were nutso for wine. A lot Winos. Of <laughs> Pretty much. Wino forever. Right. So um, the way that you would know what house to stop in, because this is in a time where they were, you know, designing shopping malls and strip centers, like— the 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 tavern looked a lot like everybody else's house because it probably was somebody's house. But if you were a new in town traveling along this Roman road and you wanted to figure out which place was the actual tavern, you would just look for um, some grapevines hanging for, over the door. That was the the basically the universal symbol among Roman occupied areas for a tavern. But when they pushed further and further west, when they got to England and occupied it, they said, well, there's not that many grapevines here. What else can we use? And they started using bushes. Right. Uh, and, you know, we'll talk a little bit all over the place about the interesting pub names because that's kind of one of the fun things sure. about pubs is their interesting names. Uh, and if you see pubs named the bush or the bull in the bush or the holly bush, uh, it's sort of thrown back to this old tradition where they would hang stuff above the door to let you know, come on in and have a drink. Right. Pretty great. That's it's kind of what all pub lore circles back to is how awesome their names are. Yeah, I agree. So what happened to the Romans, Chuck? Did they stick around, and is there a Roman president of the UK today? <laughs> no, they left, and the Anglo-Saxons took over, and they liked to drink ale. Yeah, they said Big nuts time. to this wine stuff. We were just pretending all this time to like wine while the Romans were here. We actually like ale. And the Anglo-Saxons, I didn't realize this. I was like, okay, what's the difference between the Anglo-Saxons and the Normans and the Vikings? And apparently there's plenty of differences. Mm-hmm. The Normans, I guess, came up to conquer um, in, I think, 1066 from the south, from France. But they originally still were Germanic. Um, they were, they, I think they had some Norse people mixed in. So... Like I, I said, okay, well, who who you, who lived in England originally? And apparently, it was the Celtic Britons. Okay. Okay. So this is this is the first group that came in after the Romans. So the okay. Romans came and conquered the Celtic Britons. They left. And I don't think I'm saying that right. <laughs> because I think it's just it, Br- like Britons. I have a tick or something like that. <laughs> Britons. <laughs> um, and uh, they were the, so. Then the Romans subsequently left, and the Anglo-Saxons came in and replaced them. And the Anglo-Saxons were the ones who said, "Let's all start drinking some ale." That's right. Uh, and ale is not beer. Ale uh, didn't have hops. Uh, which is the big differentiator there. Hops will come along later, uh, and uh, people still like that ale, but people also like the beer with yeah, the hops. for sure. I think it was the Dutch who said, hey, you should try these hops, man. They'll knock your socks off. And uh, when they did in the 15th century, um, the Britons 
said, well, let's let's do this. We're okay with ale, or we're, we're okay with hops from now on. We're like beer. They said it didn't knock my socks off because I wear sock garters. <laughs> right. <laughs> but they loved ale so much that it was like a part of their, like, like their meals. Whenever they drank something, mm-hmm. they usually drank ale. Um, and it, I think we talked about this in the beer episode. I don't remember. Bars, maybe? Maybe. But if you were a, uh, a housewife, a housewife, um, you were probably in charge of making ale for your family. And if you were really good at making ale, the the town might know about it, and they might come and try to buy some of your excess ale. And you might end up supplying ale to thirsty travelers who pass through. And the next thing you know, you're running what's known as an ale house. That's right. Uh, they were called ale wives or brewsters. And uh, if you want to indicate, like the Romans hung the grapevines and bushes and things mm-hmm. above their door, uh, they would have an ale stake or an ale pole, which sort of from this drawing Dave sent, uh, Dave Roos helped us with this. Woo! Uh, so <laughs> did you just give Dave a woo? Sure. <laughs> uh, it looks sort of like a witch's broom. It was a big stick uh, with branches tied to the end. Okay. And they would hang it out a window or above the doorway like a flagpole over the doorway kind of sticking out of the house. Mm-hmm. And that meant, come on in and have a drink. Yeah. And you you would. like the, Like, this is... It was really important to the the Anglo-Saxons and other subsequent groups that kind of came over and took over England to say, like, like the hospitality is really, really important. Um, and they actually started to kind of regulate it a little bit, in part because alehouses became so popular that they're like, this is something we can tax. But also, we don't want um, any kind of social issues arising from this. So I think it was King Edward the Peaceful. Um, who started passing, like, the first uh, laws that regulated drinking establishments in England. Yeah, and he said, hey, how about one of these in every town or village? And he said, and everyone went, oh, okay, I guess we can live with that. But I don't think but I don't think it was just to limit it. I think it was also to make sure that there was at least one in every town, that every yeah. town had one, too. Like, there were probably towns that didn't have it, and they're like, you need to get on the trolley. Yeah, some people were probably like, hooray, and then right. towns that had more than one went, oh, okay. Yeah, we got to flip a coin. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then he also moved on to say, and maybe we shouldn't drink as much as people. Mm-hmm. And everyone went, wait a minute. Like, mm-hmm. we've been drinking ale for breakfast, literally. Uh, and he said, how about this thing? It's called a peg tankard. And it's a it's a big, like, two-liter uh, drinking vessel that has these pegs, vertical pegs, yeah. and you're only allowed to drink down to the next peg, and then you got to pass it along to your friend, and then they can drink down to the next peg. And if you drink past your peg, then you're taxed a penny. Yeah. It was a super hygienic setup. Yeah, and two liters, I mean, that's not that much. <laughs> well, I don't mean for like per person, but like, I think about like two liter of soda, how many people were sharing that? Sure, sure. I mean, like, I don't know, two, three, four? All right. <laughs> a, sure. So a liter is 32 ounces? Yeah, so it's about two pints. No, a pint's 16 ounces. Yeah, yeah, yeah you're right. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it was about two pints. No, I'm thinking of a quart. I think a quart and a liter are pretty close. Regardless, you're right, it's not that much. It's a couple of 40s. Man. <laughs> oh, man. I've had a 40... Since college. It's been a while. That was Man, just did one you ever of those drink things. 40s of St. Ides? 
Uh, I had St. Ides. Elliot Smith says that great song, St. Ides Heaven. Um, mm. My jam was uh, not 40s, but I would, for a little while in college, I would drink Schlitz mm-hmm. or, and I know I've mentioned this before, the Mickey's Big Mouth. Yeah, sure. But I, I can't imagine drinking that swill now. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. Even at the time, St. Ives was terrible stuff. Yeah. I never understood. Even among the malt liquors that came in 40-ounce <laughs> bottles, right. St. Ives was gross. What was the eight ball? Old English. Old English, yes. I think that may have been tied with St. Ives. It was all pretty gross. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It really was. The early drinking days are just nothing to be proud of. No. It's like, you call this orange juice? You call this a Cape Cod? Right. (laughs) Uh, But now we're more refined in our old age, and we drink very tasteful small cocktails. Sure. 40 ounces at a time. I've actually dialed it back to almost nothing these days. Oh, yeah? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, get better sleep. Yeah, and better next days, really. But yeah, yeah, better sleep, too. Yeah, It's more the next days to me. That's why I was just like, "This this is not okay. Yeah, yeah, it's good. As you get older, you gotta gotta dial that back. Didn't you say you don't get affected by it very much? Well, like hangovers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't really get that hungover, and if Man. I do, then I willingly wade into those waters. Oh, I see. Yeah, you know, like I know mm-hmm. it's coming. I'm like, you knew yeah, you're gonna have yeah. just one one of those nights. But yeah, those are few and far between these days. You schedule a blood transfusion for the next morning? <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, should we take a break? Yeah, let's take a break, and then we'll go to the Emerald Isle right after this. All right, let's do it. Listen to this. It's a game changer. Amazon is now in healthcare. Yes, Amazon. It's called Amazon One Medical. They offer same-day appointments, and if that's not convenient enough for you, they also have 24-7 virtual care. Yeah, you know, imagine you're feeling so sick that even the thought of getting out of bed is just too much for you. With Amazon One Medical, you don't have to leave the house. Of course, what good is that if you then have to drag yourself to the pharmacy, but you don't have to do that either because of Amazon Pharmacy. It makes a lot of sense. Delivering things fast is what Amazon is known for, and that's exactly what they do here. They'll deliver your prescriptions directly to your door. No waiting in pharmacy lines with people who probably all have something worse than whatever you're there for. Again, this is a game changer. Thanks to Amazon Pharmacy and Amazon One Medical, healthcare just got less painful. Hey, friends, if you've ever been in the market for a new home, you know home shopping can be a lot. There's so much you don't know and so much you need to know. Like, what are the neighborhoods like? What are the schools like? Who is the agent who knows the listing or neighborhood the best? And why can't all this information just be in one place? Yeah, well, now it is, everybody, on Homes.com. They've got everything you need to know about the listing itself, but even better. They've got comprehensive neighborhood guides and detailed reports about local schools, and their agent directory helps you see the agent's current listings and sales history. Homes.com collaboration tools make it easier than ever to share all this information with your family. It's a whole cul-de-sac of home shopping information, all at your fingertips. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Hey there, are you thirsty? Well, before you take a sip, have you stopped to think about what's in your water? Many conventional bottled waters contain PFAS, harmful substances known as forever chemicals. But 
you can drink water as clean as nature intended. Richard's rainwater collects 100% pure, refreshing drops of rain. Yes, it really is rain, everybody. This rain is caught clean before it hits the ground or becomes polluted with pesticides and contaminants commonly found in groundwater. Yep, that means no added fluoride, no chlorine, no forever chemicals, no microplastics, no nothing. And you can enjoy the clean taste of Richard's still rainwater and the long-lasting cold-pressured bubbles of Richard's sparkling rainwater. Just visit richardsrainwater.com to find a retailer near you. That's richardsrainwater.com. And we even have a special offer, don't we, Josh? Yeah, text STUFF to 2512-928887 and you'll get $2 off a 12-pack case of Richard's rainwater. Sip the sky. Looking to turbocharge your customer experience results? Take a look at Nice CX1, the world's most complete cloud-native customer experience platform. You'll achieve faster customer resolutions with intelligent self-service and streamlined agent assistance, all thanks to the scalability and flexibility of the cloud. No matter how big or how small your organization is, it's now easier than ever to create exceptional customer experiences. Visit nice.com to get started today. That's nice.com. Are we in Ireland? We are in Ireland. They got pubs here. Yep. Um, So they had their own kind of pub culture, despite the fact that the Anglo-Saxons never made it into Ireland, which I didn't realize. Um, But they they devised their own kind of um, system of hospitality as well, like the Anglo-Saxons did that said, hey, if you got people coming around your town, you need to make sure that you can take care of them. That's right. And what is the law pronounced? How is it pronounced? Brehon. Okay, B-R-E-H-O-N, is that what you're going to go with? Yeah, it rhymes with Breton. <laughs> I'm sure we're pronouncing that wrong. Uh, but that was sort of the system of, like, legal hospitality that you were talking about from, uh, originally from the 6th century. Uh, and, you know, it was, it was a lot, it comes a lot, but it definitely put a lot of emphasis on hospitality. And kind of like in England, they said, hey, uh, every town has to have a hostel, uh, which is also sort of uh, code for pub, but you could spend the night, I guess. Mm-hmm. Like in um, Yeah, but this is like, I didn't quite understand this. It said it had to be located at a main crossroads with four doors open in each direction. Is that symbolic? Or did they literally mean like, uh, don't make them walk around the corner to get in? I, I don't know. I really don't. Maybe travelers were generally dumber than they are today back then. I'm not sure. but and they could only move in straight lines. <laughs> that's what I said, right. But um, additionally, under the law, you had to have, an, you couldn't have an empty cauldron. It always had to be ready to go with ale. You had to have uh, on hand raw meats and cooked meats ready to serve. Also animals ready to slaughter. And that any time a traveler showed up, 24 hours a day, you had to serve them. That was just, the hospitality was that emphasized. It was almost like the local chamber of commerce was in charge of writing the laws for that Mm -hmm. Brehan law. Yeah, 24-7. I love it. Yeah. Like uh, Backstreet. (laughs) What was that? Remember that club, Backstreet, that was open 24 hours? Oh, in Atlanta. Right. That was the late night place. Yes. But it was like open 24 hours for real. Yeah, I, I didn't go there much. I didn't either. I mean, I was I was not living in Atlanta during its heyday. Okay, gotcha. Is what I mean to say. I gotcha. I was all about Backstreet, so I just didn't live there. I see. Uh, 
So in England, we're kind of marching forward through time. Uh, I think it was between 13 and 1600. This is when things kind of made the shift over those few hundred years from someone's home where the lady made great ale mm-hmm. uh, to an official like licensed, what we would call a pub today. Um, I still don't think they were called public houses at this point, right? No, not until the Victorian era in the, I think, the late 19th century. All right, but they were actually licensing places in the 1500s, uh, and they made a distinction between the three different kinds of places where you could serve booze. Uh, the ale house, which we talked about, uh, you could only sell ale and beer, though. Uh, then you had your taverns, which also sold liquor and wine and food, and then the inn where you could spend the night. Yeah, and one other really big um, shift that took place during that time from alehouses to common brewers with licenses was that the licenses were given to men. So the the custom of making ale and eventually beer moved from women to men exclusively, basically. It was taken out of women's hands. Yeah, and it feels like an industry that's still very much uh, Mm male-dominated, as is the wine industry, but I know there's a lot of support behind female uh, brewers and winemakers these days. Uh, so that's always a good thing to seek out. Yeah, well, there should be. Uh, but there were a lot of pubs per person back then. Uh, There's a census from 1557 that basically uh, showed that there was one licensed pub for every 187 people, uh, whereas it's about one for every 657 people today. Which, I mean, if you've been to England any time recently, like, there are a lot of pubs there. Oh, yeah. So to imagine there were that many more back then, or that fewer people, I guess, is probably the likelier thing. Yeah, same amount of pubs, just a lot fewer people. <laughs> yeah, I always love working out dumb stuff in my head live on <laughs> our episodes, but there's a good example of it. Uh, we had a great episode on gin. I didn't think that was dumb, by the way. It doesn't matter. It's a combination of, of both, I think. Uh, more pubs and fewer people. I appreciate you. You're being very magnanimous on your birthday. Uh, Jen, we had a great episode on gin, um, but if you remember from that episode in the 1700s, gin became a, a very sort of evil liquor, yeah. and there were moves to ban it and limit gin drinking. But while this was going on, beer was on the rise, and, and England was all in on beer, basically saying, like, we're not saying don't drink. We're saying gin is bad and that ale and beer is really good. Yeah, they definitely accepted it from their ire. Um, and there was a there was a really good, um, I guess, a political cartoon. It was two, two different panels in it uh, that was produced in the 18th century uh, by William Hogarth. I think it came out in 1751. And on one side is Beer Street on the left side. On the right side is a very similar picture, but it's on Gin Lane. <laughs> and if you look into what's going on in those pictures, they're very... Two very different pictures. Um, and Gin Lane, it's basically like just has been ravaged by gin. There's a, a mother who's like, stop, her her child is toppling over a wall where it had just been breastfeeding because her mom is now like trying to figure out how to buy some gin. <laughs> There's some children um, fighting over a dog or fighting over a bone with a dog. Um, I think a tradesman is is pawning his his tools. Uh, all for gin, and then if you go over to Beer Street, it's a different different picture altogether for sure. Yeah, everything's happening on Beer Street. People are working hard. They look good. 
They're making art and they're drinking mm-hmm. beer. But what's funny is if you look closely on Beer Street too, there's stuff that's there's there's a, there's it's struggling a little bit too. There's like boards over one window. Um, people are definitely crocked. It's just hilarious that they didn't try to make it like perfectly perfect. Like there's still like just some some frayed edges around there on Beer Street too. I thought that was kind of funny. And then the third panel was uh, Weed Avenue. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing bad was happening there. No, everybody's just kind of sitting around. Yeah, there's a lot of PlayStation happening. Yeah, I forgot what people do. <laughs> What, when they smoke pot? Yeah. I can't even come up with a decent joke here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's move to the Victorian uh, era and area, Uh uh, because that is when we finally get our name, uh, the public house. And this is when things really sort of, uh, as as did much in the Victorian area. uh, Man, why do I keep saying that? Mm -hmm. The Victorian era took on a shine and a fanciness. And these places became pretty swank. Yeah, because while gin was vilified and run out of town in the middle of the 18th century, by the middle of the 19th century, it had come back, remember, in a different form. Originally, it was Dutch gin. Yeah. And then uh, London dry gin made its its mark in the 19th century. And everybody's like, oh, well, this is fine. We're making it here. And we like gin again. And so they built gin palaces starting in the 1840s. And they were very, very nice. They had like marble bars and they were just really well decked out. And um, the pubs started kind of replicating that vibe when they were being built or remodeled or whatever. And so pubs started to to add, like, bars. Apparently, they didn't have bars before. I guess it was just all comfortable chairs and, like, maybe— And tables and things, yeah. Yeah. Um, And so they added bars at this era as well. Pretty awesome. Uh, In Ireland, you know, if we're, again, going chronologically around this time— they had some interesting, like the pubs over there, and I think this is true to a certain degree in England too, but they were they were more than just the place to go drink. It was sort of the a center for public discourse and activity. Uh, some of them operated other businesses, like some um, acted as banks during the daytime or post offices. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there was the Coroner's Act of 1846 that basically said uh, pubs have these great, cool cellars and uh, that's where dead bodies should be taken in our village to be stored until the funeral because every pub has got a, a very cool basement, and that wasn't just a, the most common thing at the time in homes. So uh, the Coroner's Act of 1846, uh, I think, demanded that a dead body was brought to the nearest pub. Yeah, and some uh, publicans, uh, people who own and operate pubs, um, said, oh, okay, I can make some money doing that. And they started installing, like, marble bars in the basement, the cellars of their pubs, to better accommodate corpses and cadavers that came their way. So they became undertakers as well. And it makes me wonder, like, how many how many Irish pubs have these marble slabs that the corpses yeah. used to be laid out on? Still today, I would love to see that. That would, That'd be I mean, cool. imagine going in for to a pub for a pint and ended up getting a tour like that. Yeah, that'd be really cool. It'd be like you suddenly woke up on Weed Street. Right. (laughs) Weed Avenue. Dang. Uh, And then what about this other thing? This was really cool, I think. Uh, I love it when someone creates a drinking law uh, that also has a tremendous gaping loophole 
for people to jump through. Uh, and that was the case in eighteen in the 1870s in Ireland mm-hmm. uh, to kind of tame down the pub scene. They said, all right, you got to close before midnight, and you can only go to these pubs um, at any hour if you're what's called a bona fide traveler, <laughs> which means that you have traveled in good faith uh, at least three miles, like not just three miles to go get your drink, but right. you're really traveling. Right. So some Dublin pubs um, picked up stakes and moved about three miles outside of town. <laughs> yes, sir. So anyone in Dublin who went there had to be, by definition, traveling. And then it was just a blurry line whether you were a bona fide traveler or whatever. So they, they found that, that gaping loophole to drive through, drive their horse and carriage through. Yeah, it's like uh, it's one of those hard to enforce things like cutting through a gas station mm-hmm. to avoid a red light. So you also said, Chuck, that um, the <laughs> Irish pubs served as these like community centers, and English pubs definitely do too. But I, I feel like the Irish pubs actually kind of codified it with things like the Coroner's Act. Yeah. Um, but they really served as as uh, even greater community centers, maybe even more vital community centers uh, or vitally needed ones over here in the U.S. When the Irish started coming over to America beginning in the 1840s, um, they brought with them their knowledge of how to build and operate a pub. So Irish pubs started springing up, and they they very much served as like the glue for the community there. Yeah, uh, taverns especially. Um, I, I know that uh, here in Atlanta, anytime there is a big political uh, discourse and activity and mm-hmm. they need the person's, I know you know what I'm going to say, mm-hmm. they need like the person on the street's take, uh, the news crews will invariably go to Manuel's Tavern, hmm. uh, sort of right near the Virginia Highlands in Atlanta, and it's a, it's a great old traditional uh, sort of American style tavern uh, that's been around for a long, long time. That was owned by a local politician named Manuel Maloof, and as a result, he would have events there, and it became sort of a, sort of just known for political discourse in Atlanta. So that's where the news always goes. Gotcha. I thought you were going to say they went to Backstreet. Oh, no. <laughs> It's not still open, is it? No, I don't think so. But they, so yeah, Manuel's, Man, is it Manuel's or Manuel's? It's Manuel's. Okay. So yeah. Manuel's Tavern was established in 1957. Seems kind of old. But mm-hmm. apparently there's still taverns in operation today that date back to the colonial period even. Like there's one in Newport, Rhode Island called the White Horse Tavern that says it's been open since 1673. Uh, yes, not the tavern? New York White Horse. That is 200 years old or younger. Oh, is it? Yeah, I mean, you think like the White Horse Tavern. Oh, it's the oldest thing in New York. Mm-hmm. And not even close because the, uh, I guess it's pronounced the Francis Tavern mm-hmm. in New York is from uh, the 1780s. Yeah, apparently George Washington took his uh, troops there to toast them after the British finally left the North American continent. I'd never heard of this place. I was disappointed because I like to try and check out the old haunts in New York. Mm-hmm. And I thought I knew them all. But this one, you know, it's down there in the financial district at the very lower tip of Manhattan. And it's just not an area I get to. I came across um, a, a mention of a place called Lafitte's Blacksmith Shop down mm. in New Orleans. And it's not a tavern or a pub, but it's supposed to be the oldest bar in the United States. And it, that it supposedly dates from 1622. Wow. And that it, it was called a blacksmith shop to throw off the authorities. It was actually not only a, a bar, an illegal bar, but also a hideout for pirates who would plan 
and sell their um, stolen goods there. And it's oh, still cool. open today from what I understand. Have you seen the new pirate show, Our Flag Means Death? No, is it any good? Yeah, it's very funny. <laughs> we just finished Dope Sick. Did not see that. It's not funny, but it's really good. Uh, what is it? Does it? What's what's the story there? It's about the Sackler family and Purdue Pharma and how they oh, created yeah, yeah, the yeah, opioid yeah, yeah. epidemics single handedly in the United States. And it not a documentary. It though? does not. No, it's okay. it's a drama, well acted by every single person in it. Incredibly well written, well directed. It just keeps moving through eight episodes. Um, it's on Hulu, and it is um, like. It's just nuts to realize that we all just lived through that and didn't know what was going yeah. on and are just still only waking up to the damage that this this family did. Well, our flag means death is much more fun than that. <laughs> I'll check that out. <laughs> you check out Dope Sick, and I'll check out our flag means death. Okay. Uh, I guess we should take a break. Uh, take our second break, and we'll come back and talk about pub names and pub games right after this. Listen to this. It's a game changer. Amazon is now in healthcare. Yes, Amazon. It's called Amazon One Medical. They offer same-day appointments. And if that's not convenient enough for you, they also have 24-7 virtual care. Yeah, you know, imagine you're feeling so sick that even the thought of getting out of bed is just too much for you. With Amazon One Medical, you don't have to leave the house. Of course, what good is that if you then have to drag yourself to the pharmacy? But you don't have to do that either because of Amazon Pharmacy. It makes a lot of sense. Delivering things fast is what Amazon is known for, and that's exactly what they do here. They'll deliver your prescriptions directly to your door. No waiting in pharmacy lines with people who probably all have something worse than whatever you're there for. Again, this is a game changer. Thanks to Amazon Pharmacy and Amazon One Medical, healthcare just got less painful. Hey, friends, if you've ever been in the market for a new home, you know home shopping can be a lot. There's so much you don't know and so much you need to know. Like, what are the neighborhoods like? What are the schools like? Who is the agent who knows the listing or neighborhood the best? And why can't all this information just be in one place? Yeah, well, now it is, everybody, on Homes.com. They've got everything you need to know about the listing itself, but even better. They've got comprehensive neighborhood guides and detailed reports about local schools, and their agent directory helps you see the agent's current listings and sales history. Homes.com collaboration tools make it easier than ever to share all this information with your family. It's a whole cul-de-sac of home shopping information all at your fingertips. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Hey there, are you thirsty? Well, before you take a sip, have you stopped to think about what's in your water? Many conventional bottled waters contain PFAS, harmful substances known as forever chemicals. But you can drink water as clean as nature intended. Richard's rainwater collects 100% pure, refreshing drops of rain. Yes, it really is rain, everybody. This rain is caught clean before it hits the ground or becomes polluted with pesticides and contaminants commonly found in groundwater. Yep, that means no added fluoride, no chlorine, no forever chemicals, no microplastics, no nothing. 
and you can enjoy the clean taste of Richard's still rainwater and the long-lasting cold-pressured bubbles of Richard's sparkling rainwater. Just visit richardsrainwater.com to find a retailer near you. That's richardsrainwater.com. And we even have a special offer, don't we, Josh? Yeah, text STUFF to 2512-928887, and you'll get $2 off a 12-pack case of Richard's rainwater. Sip the sky. Are you ready to revolutionize your customer experience? Then look no further than NICE, the global leader in cloud CX software for self-service and agent-assisted customer interactions. That's right. Imagine achieving lightning-fast customer resolutions, all thanks to the power, the unlimited scalability, and flexibility of one complete cloud CX solution. Yep, with NICE's cutting-edge CX1 platform, you can join thousands of organizations around the globe who are already transforming customer experience in the cloud. That's a pretty good company. Yeah, but NICE is more than just a robust cloud CX platform. Its dedication to continuous innovation ensures that you're going to stay ahead of the competition. Get started by visiting NICE.com. Explore the world's most complete cloud-native customer experience platform, CX1. Just visit NICE.com. NICE, cloud-powered CX at scale. All right, names and games. Nice. You're not going to bite. No. <laughs> All right. Uh, one of the fun parts about pubs is is their names. Um, some of the names at the beginning, like we mentioned, the the uh, broom that they would put out front. Sometimes they got tired of that, and they would just put out other things. Uh, like a boot or a copper kettle, and that's where you would have pub names like the boot or the copper kettle. Especially if you were um, an illiterate population at the time, which a lot of people were for sure. a lot of the history of pubs, um, you would like you would say, "I'm going to the copper kettle," not because there was a sign that said the copper kettle, because <laughs> yeah. they had a copper kettle out. Yeah, like it, 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 that's that, that was really helpful in that sense. And then over time, as literacy became more and more widespread, they would they would write the name out and include a picture still for the people who couldn't yet read. Yeah, that's why they had those cool signs. Uh, it's funny, like if there was only one per town, they should just say, "I'm I'm going to beer." <laughs> right. That's all they needed to say. Going to Ale House, but the those those pub names they are really weird in a lot of cases. Even if you are English you might think some of them are really, really weird. Um, and a lot of times you can kind of trace the history of that town or that area through the name of the pub. A lot of times they um, trace the the larger history of England, like the push and pull between Catholics and Protestants, the push mm-hmm. and pull between the, the monarchy and um, the, the, like Cromwell and his cronies during the English Civil War. Um, like they, the names kind of reflect these, these changes over time in some ways too. Yeah, the I think it was King Richard the Lionheart during the Crusades, there are a lot of these pubs that were on the routes of the pilgrimages and soldiers making their way over there. And so you would see there was one that's, uh, I think, still around uh, called Ye Old Trip to Jerusalem, mm-hmm. little on the nose, uh, and another <laughs> one called uh, The Saracen's Head, also on the nose. Yeah. I saw that ye old trip to Jerusalem. They have like caves um, underneath the the actual current structure that they still use for seating today. That are definitely dated back to the 13th century. Oh wow! Yeah, so I mean, like it's legit. 
Um, some of the other names that kind of have come along, like I was saying, when when um, Cromwell and his puritanical people took over, and I'm sorry, I misspoke. That wasn't during the English Civil War. This came later, I believe. Um, but Cromwell, when when the Puritans took over and deposed the king, um, the, there were a lot of pub owners who said, well, you know, these Puritans aren't super into a lot of the names that we have, like Bacchanalia. So that got changed to Bag of Nails. Mm-hmm. God encompasses us, which is, you, you're like, why would they change that that name? Um, and I, I remembered, like, the Puritans would have taken that probably as, like, taking God's name in vain and would have very much frowned on that. Oh, okay. So instead, they went with the much less satanic goat encompasses. <laughs> Uh, my favorite is uh, Katharina Fidelis, uh, which is a reference to Queen Catherine of Aragon, mm-hmm. uh, became Cat and Fiddle uh, because great. right there in the middle of Hollywood in Los Angeles, there is still the Cat and Fiddle pub. Oh, yeah? Yeah, and it's a place I used to go to. And, and back then, I don't know if this is still the case, but back then there were um, not rumors, but verified accounts of Morrissey hanging out at the Cat and Fiddle during the day drinking Guinness. And uh, I used to always go by there and wonder if he was sitting out. Yeah? Would you, like, just put your hands on the <laughs> the window and look inside? No, they had this great uh, f- sort of hidden outdoor courtyard. I see. Uh, off the street that was really, really lovely. But uh, I had some really good times at the Cat and Fiddle back in the day. And it's still around, I think. Um, Chuck, another thing that people would do is cast their lot with the monarchy. So you mm. see just the crown. Which I saw that they would consider they would they would take the name the crown, because if you did something like the cat and fiddle or Catharina Fidelis, when that monarch was no longer on the throne, you might have to change your name. But if you just say the crown, you're basically saying I'm down with the monarchy. Yeah, and there, boy, the crown I think is one of the more common pub names. It's number two from what I saw. Number one is Red Lion, which comes oh, from sure. all sorts of coats of arms. And Royal Oak is number three after the tree that King Charles II hid in from Cromwell and his Protestant cronies. Uh, I did look up, a, there are a bunch of websites that have like the top 20 weirdest names or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and I was looking through, there was one that was pretty good. Like sometimes it was what the people did way back when. There's one called the Blacksmith and the Toffee Maker. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of on the nose. Uh, Man, but- can you imagine living in town <laughs> with like a bona fide toffee maker? Yeah. I oh, love so toffee nice. so much. I'd just live there. I'd live outside of their house. <laughs> uh, one's called the Job Center. And this is in Deptford. For uh, real? Yeah, and it was a former Job Center, and they just renamed it the Job Center. Oh, okay. Uh, and then what is the – I can't find the one with a really long name that was kind of fun. Here's one, the Camel and Artichoke. That's pretty fun. It's <laughs> a good one. Or uh, the Pyrotechnist's Arms. Well, that was a big one. So, so there was probably a fireworks factory around there. Is yeah, that correct? That's what it says. Yeah, it was so, built on the site of a fireworks factory. Yeah. So clearly, that was a, a fairly recent one, but it follows a long-standing tradition. Like if you if you served um, carpenters, you would call your place the Carpenter's Arms. Yeah. Or the Golden Fleece, if you had like a bunch of wool workers who frequented your place, or if like you. Uh, or if you set up shop to attract, like, the um, sporting types, mm-hmm. you'd have, like, the fox and the hound or something right. like that. Yeah, the dog or and the, the lady, duck. The lady and the tramp. The lady and the tramp, where you can share spaghetti with no silverware. <laughs> That's right. It's very cute. You end up kissing in the end. So you, you said names, but the second half of your 
titillating rhyme um, said games. It promised games. <laughs> what kind of games are you delivering on? Well, of course, darts. Uh, I, I used to be quite a dart enthusiast and played in dart leagues. Oh, really? Through, yeah, through college and then in my post-college, I guess, uh, early 2000s Atlanta stay for a few years mm-hmm. before I moved back to LA. I was still into darts. Mm-hmm. Uh, loved it. I think we should do a whole podcast on darts. When I moved to LA, they had nothing but the soft tip electronic game darts, which oh, is... that's not good. No, nah, you can't even do that. So I didn't even bother. So I kind of fell out of playing, but uh, my friend Justin, who I've referred to a bunch of you know, uh, is still very big into darts and, and one of the best dart players around. He, he does... Uh, Quite well in, in like regional tournaments and like stuff wow. like that. Well, does Mr. So much fun. Mr. Fancy Pants Justin, who's so good at darts, know that it originated with English archers? I don't even know if he knows the history. I'm going to ask him. Oh, you got to tell him. And don't tell him I called him Mr. Fancy Pants. I won't. <laughs> he he doesn't care. <laughs> so he raises apparently, chickens. Apparently it did. Um, that's right. And sells wine. Um they, they apparently it was English archers who would like draw targets on um, – uh, oak casks behind the bar and would shorten their arrows and use those to kind of keep their, their marksmanship steely-edged. That's right. And you know what? I feel bad the other day. I thought about mentioning uh, he and Melissa's wine shop without saying the name mm-hmm. because we say so many names of places, and this is one of my oldest friends. So uh, here in Atlanta, in the neighborhood of Kirkwood, you can go to Dom Bejus. Wine oh, shop, nice. uh, Melissa's Portuguese and Dom Bejus is Portuguese. Mm-hmm. They have a great selection of Portuguese wine, but all kinds of great wine. And uh, a new dude that they just hired, I just met the other day. Uh, I was talking to him for a minute, and he went, by the way, big stuff you should know, fan. Oh, yeah? Yeah, so we chatted up for a little while, but uh, it, it, you, you were more likely to see me there than anywhere in Atlanta if you ever want to stop by. There's mm-hmm. a th- 30% chance I'm there. And it's conveniently located in the old Backstreet building. <laughs> it's conveniently located next to the police station. Oh, is that convenient? Yeah. I guess so for the police. Yeah, but here's the deal. You're next to a police station. They're either just getting off work, mm-hmm. and they don't want to be bothered, or they're just getting on duty, and they don't want to be bothered. <laughs> I guess you're right. So it's yeah, kind of the, the perfect place. place to drink. <laughs> I guess so. You just sit outside and drink and, and mock them as they come, you know, to and fro. Yeah, and I can walk home or ride my bike. Oh, well, there you go. So it's convenient for you is what you're saying. That's right. So, another game, Chuck, is Skittles. Yeah, I didn't quite get this. It's very easy. It's a bowling game, but instead of 10 pins, you have 9 pins. And instead of a ball, you have a disc that is about the shape and size of a cheddar cheese wheel. Oh, okay. You just roll it at the pins. All right. In the South, they call that tire bowling. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. I could totally see people doing that, too, in the South. Uh, and then there's one other one. I mean, darts really rules all I think of it there for pub games. Yeah. Uh, but something called Bat and Trap, Dave dug up as an outdoor pub game mm-hmm. uh, that seems to be a sort of early version of cricket. It's pretty neat. I watched a video of it, and these people seem to be taking it quite seriously at the pub. Uh, but there's like a little, a little gadget that holds a ball, and you tap one end of the gadget, which knocks the ball into the air, and then you hit the ball. And it looks very much like you're using a cricket bat. I'm not sure if it's called a bat or not. And then the other people field the ball. And rather than being out or not, it's now their turn to knock down a target that's located a ways away from them where you just batted with the cricket bat. Hmm. 
You know, bocce is big here in the States at, at bars now. It has a tad bit of an element of bocce to it, mm-hmm. but knocking things down with bocce. So I guess bocce and dominoes plus cricket okay. equals bat and trap. Plus beer. That's right. Oh, yeah. You gotta, you're not going to play bat and trap unless you've been drinking. That sounds like fun. I think you'd be like, what? What is this? <laughs> uh, so should we wrap it up with what's happening with pubs these days? Yes. So uh, the decline started a while ago. Uh, Dave mentions the late 19th century, and this is when sort of the first move of what people see as the the beginning of the end for the the all-encompassing neighborhood pub is when brewers uh, struck up deals with pubs to only sell their beer, mm-hmm. uh, and they became known as Tide Houses because they were tied to the one brand. Uh, and in the 1890s, it's hard to believe this is happening that long ago, but 90% of the pubs in the big cities uh, were tied houses. Yeah, and it just kept going and going um, and escalating through the 20th century, too. And Parliament said, this sounds really weird. Like, we need to get a, uh, we need to get a handle on exactly how widespread this tied houses thing is. Because a bunch of the brewers started kind of consolidating into mega breweries. Yeah. And they found that 75% of all of England's pubs were under the thumbs of six brewers. And by far, Bass controlled the most. They had 7,300 pubs that were tied to them. And here's the thing. Like, if, if you have a pub that's tied to you, all, you, all they can do is sell your merchandise. All they can do is use glasses with your logo on it. All they can do is sell your beer. And you basically set the price whatever you want. It's almost like having a franchise, basically. Yeah. Um, and so Bass had 7,300. Whitbread had 6,500. And Courage had 5,100. And then there were just three other brewers that owned the rest of them. Um, and that has a really homogenizing effect on everything. It's kind of like... You know, wherever, if you drive to any town in the United States, um, you're going to find, like, an Old Navy and a TJ Maxx and the same everything. Well, that's one thing if you're talking about, like, reasonably priced jeans and, you know, off-brand bars of soap. It's a totally different thing when you start messing with the the institution that is essentially the soul of the nation. And that's what was going on through the 20th century. Yeah, and I think it's gotten even more out of hand now. Because a lot of these pubs, and you know, we've seen sort of the same thing with uh, craft brewing here in the United States getting bought out by big brewers. But what hasn't really happened, to my knowledge, in the United States is the actual bars haven't been bought out en masse. Uh, But that's what's happened in England, and they're called pubcos. Mm -hmm. These big corporations um, have bought up like tons and tons of these pubs as sort of a real estate play, a la McDonald's. And a lot of people, the criticisms are like, this is a real estate play. Like, you're not even you're not even in this to make a good experience at the pub. It's just about sort of the building and the land. Right. And they also are really strict over margins. Like, if the stock prices uh, um, fluctuate, they might, you know, um, find ways to cut costs back at yeah. the pub. And, yeah, they don't, they don't care at all about customer experiences or consumer experiences. And apparently um, the smoking ban of 2007 and then also the lockdowns from coronavirus really yeah. put a hit on a lot of pubs. A lot of pubs were lost. I think 5,000 pubs were lost in the last, like, five years or something like that in, in England alone. Um, but I strongly suspect they're not going to ultimately go anywhere. And evidence of that is um, a group called the Campaign for Real Ale, 
which I think kind of suggests that there's always going to be this, um, man, I guess I might as well just say it, this thirst for genuine pubs <laughs> in, in England and yeah. in places like Ireland as well. Yeah, so they're trying to kind of go back to that throwback to where uh, it was true ale or real ale uh, before it was uh, hopped up and carbonated mm. uh, like beer is. Uh, and that sort of, you know, cast condition ale in the basement type of thing run by a cellarman, uh, or I guess you would say a cellar person these days, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a more push, there's a push to get those going. There are lists uh, that the campaign for real ale uh, puts, puts out a good beer guide that lists uh, 4,500 uh, camera approved pubs. Um, but yeah, coronavirus, I saw, you know, Dave listed some of the oldest ones in England. Uh, still in operation, and he listed ye old fighting cocks, mm-hmm. uh, founded in 1793. That was for a while in the Guinness Book of World's record for oldest pub. Before they said, you know what, we can't really verify this stuff anymore, so we're not even going to uh, list these places. Right. But that one closed in February. Oh no! Because not 1793, of, Chuck. 793. Oh, did I say 17? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, 793. And it closed? Uh, it closed in February, oh, and boy. the uh, the owner, they still use the word publican. He said, I'm just a publican. I'm not a politician. Mm-hmm. And so he was kind of just speaking to the lockdowns. And, you know, it, someone else will probably open it up. Uh, PETA has gotten involved and said, mm-hmm. uh, you should open it up and change the name from Ye old Fighting Cox and only serve vegan food. And, of course, people over there just love that idea. (laughs) So we talked also about Sean's Bar. It's supposed to be the oldest pub ever. And it is pretty close to being verified because archaeologists in the 70s found stuff in the walls. And actually the walls being made of daub and wattle, which I think we talked about in the bars episode. Mm -hmm. Um, And it supposedly dates back to the the, um, invasion of the Vikings around 900 C.E., so and it's still going strong as far as I know. Yeah, that's old, man. There's also the old ferry boat inn which claims to have been operating since 560 in Cambridgeshire. It's a great name. Um and I don't know if that's documented or not, but I was looking at that place and it may be the most charming beer garden out back I've ever seen in my entire life. Which one? The old ferry boat inn. Oh, yeah. I looked that one up. 560. You know, Cambridgeshire is probably pronounced Cumbershire. Kirster. <laughs> I know. As it was coming out, I was saying, I'm going to get an email for this. Good stuff. Uh, so that's it for pubs, everybody. If you have a pub near you, especially a local, which is an independent pub, go support it. Okay? Yes. Uh, and since I said go support it, that means, of course, it's time for listener mail. Yeah, and you know what? Last factoid I wanted to throw in. Uh, we don't need to get into it, but I just had no idea that the term gastropub came from London. It seems like a very American sort of name. Sure. But uh, it was coined in, in London uh, in the early 1990s is when some of the pubs started saying, hey, let's, let's stop serving uh, bangers and mash and let's start serving some uh, – they call it stuff that you would eat on vacation basically on holiday. Right, on holiday. Good stuff. Gastropubs. Uh, yeah. And since Chuck said gastropubs, now, now everybody, it's time for listener mail. Uh, I'm going to call this suggestion for something that we're actually going to do. Uh, this is from Ron G. 
Uh, hey guys, just want to offer up a suggestion for land acknowledgements. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way I found out about them was through a seminar I attended last year. The host of the seminar was a minister of a Buddhist temple up in Sacramento. And before he began the seminar, he read a statement acknowledging that the land uh, that the temple was on was previously occupied by, uh, and I think he named one, two, three, four different uh, indigenous peoples. Mm-hmm. Uh, and said, when I looked into creating a land acknowledgement for our own temple here in Los Angeles, it seemed like a lot of organizations, mostly educational institutions, have already done so. Uh, but there's some controversy behind it. But there seems to be a lot of good stuff out there on the topic, and I think listeners might enjoy it. Uh, you may even want to create a land acknowledgement for your studio. Mm, nice. So your listeners can hear what it sounds like. And that is from Ron G. That's a great idea, Ron G. And Ron, we're, we're going to do this one. This is in the works already. Yeah, that's what I was saying. It's a great idea. I remember when we were on our um, Australia-New Zealand tour, I think at pretty much every venue, they did a land acknowledgement at the beginning. That's right. They yeah. sure did. It's pretty cool. So it's a little bit of catching up we have to do here in the United States. Yeah, it's all part of the least we can do Right. (laughs) Uh, Well, let's see. If you want to get in touch with us like Ron G. did with a great suggestion, we love those kinds of things. Send them to us. You can wrap it up in an email and send it off to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 
Looking to turbocharge your customer experience results? Take a look at Nice CX1, the world's most complete cloud-native customer experience platform. You'll achieve faster customer resolutions with intelligent self-service and streamlined agent assistance, all thanks to the scalability and flexibility of the cloud. No matter how big or how small your organization is, it's now easier than ever to create exceptional customer experiences. Visit nice.com to get started today. That's nice.com.